welcome to the Sunday Night Hell Show podcast. Tonight we're talking about using the kids as pawns. In other words, the nasty practice of parental alienation. Also, how to reduce your blood pressure, which affects a surprising number of Canadians. Sports gambling and issues as we head back to school from kindergarten to university and more. The Sunday Night Hell Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. All right, here we go. Uh, Jimmy Buffett, the definition of summer, passed away on Labor Day weekend after a battle with Merkel cell carcinoma, which is a rare form of skin cancer. Uh, it's a, it's an aggressive form of skin cancer as well. And that's why it's so important with any cancers that a quick diagnosis and appropriate treatment are instigated, you know, to help to try and cure this disease. Although I know that it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, Merkel, Merkel cell carcinoma, uh, this particular skin cancer is a, uh, type of skin cancer where cancerous cells are found on or just beneath the skin. Uh, it appears usually as a lump that has grown rapidly on areas where that are typically sun exposed, like the areas of the head or the neck, the hands and the arms. Um, but it can also appear in areas that are protected from the sun as well. And oftentimes it metastasizes or spreads to other parts of the body and even fairly small tumors can metastasize as well. And it typically goes to nearby lymph nodes, but it also can go to the liver, the bones, the lungs, and the brains. And it's just such a uh, devastating disease. Any, any type of cancer, especially stage four, where it does leave the original place where it began and it, and it does, especially if it goes uh, to the lymph nodes and other parts of the body, um, it can just be such a painful and, and devastating disease. Um, Merkel, uh, Merkel cell carcinoma um, is usually caused in part by a virus that is typically harmless. And the virus was discovered in 2008, the Merkel cell polio polyoma virus. And um, it's also caused by an extensive exposure to sunlight, as I mentioned, and it's typically seen in people with fairer skin. And 80% of MCC cases, uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, are caused by the virus, and about 20% are caused by extensive sun damage. So it's important uh, that you protect yourself repeatedly, I know we're coming toward the end of summer, but you know, there are times when we have beautiful Septembers and Octobers and the sun is still strong in certain areas of this country. And so it's very important that you put on sunscreen, protect yourself with particular clothing, um, UV clothing and sunglasses and hats and that kind of thing. Very, very important uh, to do that. So people who have significant prolonged suppression of their immune system, people who are immunodeficient, um, like somebody who has had a major organ transplant, like a heart transplant or a kidney transplant, or they have um, HIV, they are at high risk of MCC, but over 90% of Merkel cell carcinoma patients have no known problem with their immune system. And this is much more common after the age of 65. Typically, there's a firm, painless, shiny lump or tumor on the skin. The skin can be reddish or purple in color. And um, it often resembles a benign lesion. And oftentimes people 
you know, may not pay attention to it or may not think, gee, I should go and have this biopsied where samples of cells are taken from the tumor and, and looked under a microscope by a pathologist. Um, they typically do a punch biopsy and it's exactly as it sounds, a small little bit um, of tissue is taken or they do a shave biopsy as well and abnormal tissue is removed with a scalpel. And, and so they look at this under um, microscopes and then the diagnosis is made. Um, they'll often do a sentinel lymph node biopsy as well to see if it has spread. Um, and, you know, more often than not, it, it does and it, and it has in this particular case, in the case of Jimmy Buffett. Um, and so, you know, treatment as with any cancer is dependent upon um, the stage that you're at. And, you know, cancer in and of itself is just such a devastating disease. I, I lost somebody very close to me this summer um, due to stage four kidney cancer. Um, and, you know, it's just heartbreaking and you know, people suffer. They often suffer um, extensively with the treatment just as much as they do the disease. Cancer is typically a genetic condition and it develops because of changes in cellular genes that control cell function. But there are some things that people do that actually may increase their risk of getting cancer, like smoking and drinking alcohol, um, exposure to sun as well. Um, and so it's very important, once again, that you live as healthy of a life as possible. Um, you know, and cancers oftentimes can cause death. Gastrointestinal cancers, for example, can cause death because of malnutrition that's related to the blockage of the digestive system or an infection. And lung cancers, um, we often see death because of lung collapse or an infection or uh, lack of oxygen. Bone cancers, the, the issue there is that there's increased calcium levels in the bloodstream and a reduction of healthy bone marrow reduces your body's ability to fight infection and, or to stop bleeding or to deliver oxygen to your tissues, which is so important. And, and liver cancers as well cause death because of a buildup of bodily chemicals and toxins. And, and blood cancers cause damage to blood vessels, and that gives rise to fatal, uncontrollable bleeding. And also brain tumors. We see um, glioblastomas. People are often given um, about a year. But it's a very, very difficult um, disease. And, you know, it's very difficult to treat. And especially if it has spread um, initially, it's, it's stage. So we have stage zero, stage one, um, later stage cancer, stages two and three, and then stage four or metastatic or advanced cancer. And at this stage, cancers or tumors have spread, as I mentioned, to other parts of the body. And people with later stage cancer, stage four, will experience different symptoms depending on the type of cancer they have and the location and where it has spread, for example. So if it has spread to the bones, people often get bone pain, which is very severe. They may get nerve pain as well. Um, and sometimes people die from cancer fairly quickly, especially if there were unexpected complications or if the cancer was very severe, but oftentimes it can take months or years. And, you know, I do want to talk about on the program, um, at some point, you know, end of life, because it's a subject that we don't talk about too much and it's a very important time of life and it can be made easier by palliative care and hospice. And I think we can 
confuse those terms. And I also think that people don't appreciate them um, or appreciate exactly what they do and what they are meant for. Um, but it's very important. People at the end of their life, um, as the cancer spreads or grows, it'll start to impact multiple organs and the essential body processes that they perform. So people get extreme exhaustion and weakness and, and they get brain fog as well. And they lack interest in things that they previously enjoyed. They almost remove themselves um, from life or the, the things that meant something to them. Of course, they get weight loss and muscle loss or appetite loss, difficulty eating and swallowing. That's a big issue. And they require a lot of assistance and help with most activities as well. And so they, you'll notice that they'll spend much more time sleeping as time goes on as, and as the cancer spreads and worsens. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's so difficult. They get changes in their heart rate. They become more faint. Um, they're very, very weak. Their blood pressure gets lower. And um, it's just a tough, very, very difficult way to go. But it's something that hospice can certainly help with. Anyway, um, it's not just cancer that people suffer with and um, and lose their life to. People also lose their lives to cardiovascular disease. And we're going to... Hopefully you're having a little bit of a rest from labor. I certainly took a rest from labor today. I said, I'm, I'm not cleaning my house. <laughs> that is it. I am not cleaning my house. I am resting, reading, walking, swimming. <laughs> That's and eating. Oh yes, eating, but uh, and not as healthy as I would have liked to have done. But it is Labor Day weekend. That's my excuse anyway. And we certainly have an excuse all the time for why we eat certain ways. But I was really intrigued to see this um, this uh, clinic that they're offering, or this check that they're offering, I should say, in the UK. Um, first of all, we're talking blood pressure here. We're talking hypertension. And I was really surprised to see these numbers. The prevalence of hypertension, which is defined as 140 over 90, increases significantly with age. So men, 71% of men and 69% of women between the ages of 70 to 79 were about three times as likely to be categorized as hypertensive, which as I mentioned is 140 over 90, as males and females age 40 to 49. I'm 40, sorry, to 59 years of age. And so the males in the 40 to 59 um, years age group, uh, 25% of those males were categorized as hypertensive and 21% of women between the ages of 40 to 59, but it jumps up to you know, 70% of men and women between the ages of 70 and 79 um, have hypertension. That's just shocking to me. Now I know this is a big issue, but so this, which is why I just loved what I saw um, in about clinics in the UK. Now I know we do this in um, drugstores across Canada, but men are to be offered blood pressure checks in barbershops as part of a national health um, drive to prevent heart attacks as research reveals, according to this particular research, that they face double the risk that women do. But obviously in Canada, we have similar rates of hypertension and having high blood pressure raises the risk of a heart attack. But Many men and women are not aware that they may be affected because typically there are no symptoms of high blood pressure. 
So, I mean, occasionally people might get nosebleeds or headaches, but for the most part, it is asymptomatic and people do not realize unless they have their blood pressure checked. And that involves going to the doctor or potentially going to a drugstore. But, you know, oftentimes people will, they know that they have high blood pressure and they don't go to the doctor. They don't get it treated. But these free checks are going to be offered in a wide range of locations. They're also going to be offered at community centers um, and other and mosques and churches all through the country. So they, they're really trying to reduce the impact on the healthcare system. I think we need to do the same thing here as well. Um, so very, very interesting. And um, in the UK, the um, number of blood pressure checks because of this for people over the age of 40 has doubled. Um, but they actually have greenlit this massive expansion of the scheme in England. Um, and so the goal here is to reduce the number of heart attacks and, you know, ultimately get people treated. Uh, but there are certainly some things that you can do after you have been diagnosed with hypertension to actually reduce your um, risk of hypertension and also reduce your risk of heart attacks. So this particular study um, in the UK was looking at sex-specific risks of cardiovascular events. It was led by the University of Aberdeen, and it was presented recently at the annual meeting of the European Society of Cardiology. More than 20,000 people in the UK age 40 and over were tracked between 1993 and 2018. And, and of course, all the adjustments were made for ethnicity, deprivation, BMI, physical activity, alcohol, intake, and smoking. And on average, they were followed for 22 years. And they found that men had faced a generally higher risk of heart-related illnesses. So not just hypertension, but also atrial fib and um, peripheral arterial disease and, and heart attacks as well. So um, the study discovered that men have a 42% higher risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, but the study did not go any further like to look at why that was. I don't know. Maybe is it that men don't go to the doctor as frequently as women do, or men don't, um, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure why that's all I can think of, or that they don't talk about this with their friends. Anyway, there is one particular thing that you can do, um, in order to reduce your risk of heart problems by almost 20%. And it's also a study that was out of the UK as well. And that's cutting out salt from your meals can slash your risk of heart problems and strokes by almost a fifth. And this is the largest study of its kind. Um, and you, you just have to reduce the salt intake by a little bit. You don't have to um, reduce it by a significant amount. And so that's just one small step for humankind, <laughs> one and giant leap for healthcare. Um, this would help tremendously. Uh, you know, if you, you just ditch the salt or just look at, you know, I think a food diary is a good thing. Just something else that I think is so sad. And I've, I've seen people do this. I have friends who've gotten divorced and they have done this to their ex-spouse. Uh, and I just can't believe it. I just think it is the absolute one of the meanest things that somebody can do. And what I'm talking about is parental alienation. It's a strategy whereby one parent intentionally displays to the child unjustified negativity that is aimed at the other parent. In other words, they're trying to turn the children against their other 
parent. Joining me on the line to talk about this horrific thing is Natalie Forchuk. She is the founder and advocate of Parental Alienation Support Canada. Good evening, Natalie. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me from Vancouver tonight. Um, and happy Labor Day weekend. Hope you're getting a little break <laughs> on this Labor Day it's weekend. A little one. A little yes. one, yeah. Well, well, that's great. Um, so parental alienation, I kind of did the textbook uh, definition. What, what do you define as parental alienation? I mean, that is a great definition. It's kind of textbook. Uh, the way I, I define it is, is similar. I say, you know, it is uh, simple and complex at the same time. It's influencing a child or children to turn against one parent by the other parent. Exactly. And, and, and it just seems... Oh, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, Do we see this mostly in divorce? Yes. So we see it in divorce. We see it in separation, even though. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about uh, custody battles. You know, they're kind of built up as being these big things. And you see it on TV shows and and all that kind of stuff. And what you don't see it, it is the children, as you said in the intro, being used as pawns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, parents decide that they know better, that they have a better way, and that they're going to hurt the other parent. And it's not necessarily conscious in the beginning by one parent or the other. Sometimes it is, uh, but sometimes it's not. And you literally are tearing the child apart trying to... Uh, make a case for yourself as a parent. It comes from a place of, I think, deficit as a parent. When you go through a separation or divorce, which I have been through, I've been through alienation, uh, you know, there there is a loss and there is a feeling of as a horrible parent often. And so you want to prove that you're the good parent. And through that, you end up actually causing more harm. Absolutely. And I often think, I mean, I've seen this and I, to be honest with you, in the cases that I've seen, I've felt it was intentional. In fact, in one particular one, Mm -hmm. I knew it was intentional because the Mm -hmm. person was talking about the strategies she was coming up with Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, turn her children against her ex-husband and, you know, preventing him from seeing them, for example. And and so leading me to what are the signs of parental alienation? You said you've gone through it yourself. Yes. Uh, the signs of parental alienation, I mean, it can happen quickly or slowly. If it's slow, uh, the signs are your, your, child, your children just or child start to withdraw from you. They start to kind of be wary or not, not listen to what you're saying. Uh, or, I mean, in more overt cases, say, dad said you're wrong or mom said you're wrong or mom said this or dad said that, which is called parentification, which is when the parent puts the argument on the child. Uh, or it can be quick. I mean, in my case, it was quick, but generally it, it's a slower build, lack of access, not returning children on set times, regardless of whether you have a court order or not. Uh, I mean, those are the, the more benign cases. And then it goes into actually like cutting children off, moving across the country, moving kilometers away, instructing the school to not have contact. I mean, there's so much to it. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that they do as well is confide in the child mm-hmm. um, it, as a, a person who alienates the, their children from their, one of their parents. Um, and how about yep. bad-mouthing the targeted parent? Is that a sign of parental alienation as well? Yes. Yeah. 
So I have like a little list that I, I, I'll just like tell you kind of, you know, from the, the little to the big, you know, bad mouthing it's the other parent of the child is my first sign. Involving a chil- child or children in adult problems, and that's parentification. And that's what you're talking about, the, the confiding part, is, uh-huh. is making the child the confidant and the equal in, in the battle and not leaving it to the parents. Uh-huh. There comes, you know, telling the child that the other parent doesn't even care about them. So there's, there's outright lying. Then restricting access. Then denying communication and phone calls. Then you get into false accusations and affidavits and you start moving to the court system and then you're into litigation. That's kind of the pattern. And, and there's, wow. there's a myriad of, of, you know, nuances that go into that. But that I say, you know, if I had to list out where it starts and where it could end, I'd use that right. as a guideline. Right. Um, and this on, on some level may force the child or the child may feel like they have to choose one parent over the other, especially if they're young children or younger children. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be young children. In fact, uh, you know, younger children can be a little bit, they're malleable, but sometimes, you know, they're still in in a little bit of a a developmental stage of a fantasy land where you see Mm -hmm. more damage actually is in teenagers who have free will, who have the opportunity to think and, but they're, you know, they're still developing. They're influenced by both parents, and they will tend to lean into what is the, what I would say is the easier course of action, not that it's the right or the less painful. It's just the one that's talked about the most. So if it's a parent that's saying, you know, you know, don't talk to dad. He, you know, he hasn't paid child support, or you know, he doesn't really care. Just an offshoot comment to a teenager can be something that can absolutely cut off communication from that teenager to the other parent. And I use dad. I will say this could be mom as well. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be either gender. I won't say, you know, it's one or the other. Right. Is it um, fairly distributed or is it more uh, women that do this to ex-husbands that are male? Uh, or is it, uh, do we see women do this more? Or do we see men do this more? I would say it's equal. If you really dive into the literature, you dive into case studies and case law, I don't think there's any one gender that, you know, is doing it more than the other. I think you really have to look at a case-by-case basis. I mean, demographics, uh, financial demographics. uh, But really, it just takes one person to be vindictive and not willing to set their own emotions aside in a divorce, bitter, high conflict or not, and put the child's needs first. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments or questions about this? The number to call is one 399 9898 Do you ever think there's a circumstance when it's okay to alienate your children from one of their parents? Give us a call or text one 399 And so is this about um, somebody with low self-esteem? Is it somebody with an angry heart? Is it somebody who has resentment uh, toward the uh, ex parent, the ex-spouse, I guess, who is a parent, um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine going from loving somebody, falling in love with somebody, if that was true, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because people yeah, get yeah. married for, for lots of reasons, <laughs> reasons. so let's just say yeah, that, but then starting a family together that you cannot step back and say, my marriage is about me, or uh, separation is about the issues with my um partner or spouse or whatever, and my children's health and wellness matters more. So, you know, what, what type of person does this? I would say it's a hurt person. 
That, that, mm-hmm. That's my shortest answer. If you look at, at cases, uh, 90, I won't give a, I won't give a definitive value because I don't have it in front of me. Many, many of them involve betrayal. They involve cheating. They involve hidden secrets. They involve, you know, a blow up. And that person who is hurt is finding the easiest way to hurt back. And that means, you know, well, you want the kids, you left. You know, for example, you left man or woman, uh, you'll get your kids. And I'm not saying that's right. I don't agree with it. It's not right. But that's where it starts. Right. And adults, you know, doing the inner work when you go through something, regardless of whether you're the person to leave, the person to hurt, or you're to hurt the person or you're the person hurting, what needs to happen is adults need to be adults and seek help and regulation with their own emotions so that they can regulate their child's emotions and they can come to a, a healthy, if not, you know, it doesn't mean it's going to be pretty and it's not going to be, you know, happy, could be sad, but mm-hmm. not a high conflict situation like alienation. There is no reason that it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I love it when I hear parents say, you know, they're, they're divorced. I don't, I don't love it when I hear parents say they're divorced, but if they're divorced <laughs> and they say, um, you know, I'll say, is it amicable? And they'll say, um, you know, it is in front of the children. It is for the children. Mm. It's, you know, we're, we're civil, we're respectful. Uh, we have holidays together. We, you know, I make sure that, uh, they see, uh, the, the, my, our children or whatever. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's respectful. Um, and okay. it's just so heartbreaking because I, I feel the impact on the mental health of the children has got to be devastating when, um, there's parental alienation when a child who's trying to find themselves as an adolescent, for example, and, you know, trying to find their place in the world is told your, your parent, the targeted parent is terrible, dreadful, awful. They don't love you. They don't care Mm -hmm. about you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it can lead kids. Those are, they're so vulnerable at that age and, and it can lead them down very bad paths. Like, you know, using drugs, for example, to numb Mm -hmm. their pain. Um, and, and also parents who are emotionally immature, you know, or dysregulated, as you say, um, you know, they need a lot of help in order to get to that place that says, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to do this in a respectful way. It's yeah, very... I agree with you. It, it, it is. It is a, it's, it's a tragic situation. I, and I, I use that word, you know, with sensitivity. You know, everything you just said is absolutely right. Uh, you know, one of the things that prevents, you know, that utopian view that you just said, you know, like everybody gets help and everybody mm-hmm. gets it doesn't matter, you know, emotionally immature, emotionally mature, teenager, five-year-old. What prevents mm-hmm. it is a system that is has a profit motive. And I won't right. get, you know, crazy political about it. It just is. I mean, if yeah. you want to go to court and, and you have the money to spend, you may get an outcome that you want. If right. you don't, you're you're fighting a battle that you don't even know how to fight. And then you're in your emotions and you're trying to be your own lawyer and you're trying to see your kids and it's, it, it's set up to not work. Right. And that's where alienation is like, what else, you know, if you think about a, a parent who's desperate, what are, what are the, and they want their kids, what other tools do they have? They have their kids. Right. A- and absolutely. So that's where the kids, the kids become, you know, as you said, in the intro of the pawns, they become currency. 
because right. there is no other currency for them to spend to fight the fight, if that makes any sense. My guest is Natalie Forchuk. We're talking parental alienation. That's when one parent intentionally displays to their child or children unjustified negativity toward the other parent. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Natalie. I appreciate it. I do want to, I'm getting lots Absolutely. of texts messages about this. Here's the uh, first one. My brother has been alienated from his four children for many years. They are well into their yeah. 20s and 30s. It is so sad. The kids want no contact with anyone on his side of the family. We've all tried. I've got another message here. I've had to deal with this for over 40 years. My eldest son believed this stuff and I haven't talked to him in nine years. Funny, I still love him as a son. My second son is a different story. He made up his own mind and he is my best friend. I think that happens uh, quite a bit. Somebody else texted in, went through this for 17 years of marriage plus 15 years after the separation until the eldest child had a marital problem. Then the light came on in her life and understood what had been going on. Another person writes in, dear Maureen, my ex-wife is so nasty toward me in front of our children one decade after our divorce. I just don't understand her level of resentment. Can someone ever get over this kind of thing? And I think that's the big question here. Can somebody ever get over this kind of thing, Natalie? Well, if you're talking about the person who's been alienated, the targeted parent, uh, it's not something to get over. I think, uh, and I feel the alienation really uh, scars you for life, but you can learn how to metabolize it, uh, how to work through it, and how to maintain your life while still enduring it. You know, I understand that I hear a lot of this, you know, children 40 years, 17 years, uh, you know, into adulthood, where you've lost contact with your children overall, and it takes that aha moment, uh, that that similar experience that may bring your child back to you or may not. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like, it, 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 there's no kind of playbook for this. Right. Um, yeah. I have a friend who um, was alienated from his father, uh, as a as a child, and he says that you know he he has resentment towards his mother for that. He he gets along today with both of them. Uh, his father did have a problem with uh, alcohol use, um, but he said that he loved both of his parents, and mm-hmm. he could, he hated the fact that his mother talked negatively about his father. Um, my thing is is can a person ever decide? Gee you know, maybe this ex of mine uh, is not deserving of this. I mean, I've even seen it continue or persist after the divorced parent got remarried. They're still mm-hmm. nasty oh, yes. <laughs> toward the oh, ex. I mean, 100%. so it's, I see. it doesn't make any sense to me. So which part are you talking about? You know, if you're remarried and you're still bitter towards yes. your ex and still, yes, that still doing this. Yes. Yes. I see that quite a bit. Um, I mentor quite a few people in this area, especially when they're remarried and how to let go of that Mm -hmm. and actually just have constructive conversations with their acts and and let go of the anger and the bitterness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that takes a lot of self-work that, I mean, I can't go back to that enough. It does come back to the person internally. You have to choose how you're going to keep approaching things. Are you going to use your children as currency? Are you going to keep, berating your ex for, 
you know, this person, the gentleman, I believe, that said that it's been a decade and his ex still speaks ill of him. Mm-hmm. You know, that that person hasn't done the work. And it sounds like he, you know, sort of has. And at some point you have to make peace and walk away as long as your children are okay. Right. That's the bottom line. You know, somebody else texted in and said they were they were treated poorly by their ex, but they would not lower their themselves to her level. But it's hard on holidays. Mm-hmm. Not hearing from my fifty three year old son. That's wow. how many years this goes on. I mean, it's horrific. Why can't we just be nice? Right? <laughs> why, why can't we just be kind and understanding? And you know, and the thing is, it's it's really about looking at yourself. And when a marriage breaks mm-hmm. up. And that seems to be, you know, where this occurs uh, at a separation or a divorce. Um, but when a marriage breaks up, what we we get the blame game going on. It's it's the other Absolutely. person's fault. I'm angry at them. It's their fault. They cheated on me. They did this to me. Mm-hmm. We play the victim mm-hmm. instead of saying, "What role yeah. did I have in the breakup mm-hmm. of my marriage?" And actually be the adult. But you know, oftentimes people don't grow up. It takes them a long time to grow up. So, what do you recommend? For somebody, we, we're really up against the clock, and I want to get the website first. Okay. So let's get that. <laughs> the website and, and three, two tips. What uh, for someone to do? We got thirty seconds. Okay, the website is parentalalienationsupportcanada.com. First of all, come over to the site and join our private Facebook group because we have a ton of one pagers and logical and actionable tips that can help you get through this and understand how to not be vindictive and emotional but really help your kids and help yourself kai matthews was only 19 years old when he suddenly and tragically passed away from meningitis b on june 1st 2021 meningitis b is a very serious bacterial infection b for kai a not-for-profit organization that has been established in his name, wants you to be aware that no infant, child, or adolescent should die as a result of this potentially fatal infection. Yet meningitis B is a real risk for Gen Z heading back to campus this fall. Gen Z, if you're not aware, is the newest generation born between 1997 and 2012. They are currently between the ages of 9 and 24. Joining me on the line to discuss this very important subject is Dr. Shelley McNeil, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Nova Scotia Health and Dalhousie University. Good evening, Dr. McNeil. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you so much for joining the program tonight to talk about this. First and foremost, what is meningitis? So meningitis, uh, the one we're talking about is a bacterial infection. So it's caused by a bacteria um, called MenB. And that bacteria causes inflammation in the lining around the brain and spinal cord and sometimes also cause, gets into the bloodstream and causes bloodstream infection or sepsis. So a bacterial infection um, that can be quite serious because of that inflammation and the involvement of the blood. Wow. And what would be the symptoms? I mean, this just sounds horrific. Yeah, meningitis is a scary illness for everybody because it does present pretty Quickly, and it starts as a very non-specific illness. So people might feel tired and and uh, maybe have a bit of a fever and just feel a little bit generally unwell. But then it can progress very quickly to a serious illness that can even be associated with um, people dying. So generally, people will feel a little bit unwell. But the big things to watch for are headache, uh, and of course, we 
all of us get headaches on occasion, but particularly if a headache is associated with fever. So if you have headache and fever at the same time, that's something to, to work, you know, maybe something you should think about. Um, and especially if you go on to develop a rash, meningitis uh, is associated with a kind of a weird looking rash that usually happens on the lower leg. It's sort of a bright red, sort of pinpoint, angry looking um, rash, which we call petechiae in medicine, but it's a but it's an unusual looking rash that when doctors see it, um, makes them think about meningitis B or me- other types of bacterial meningitis. Um, so fever, a headache with a, especially if it's associated with fever, and for sure if it de- if you want to develop this weird looking rash, those would be things to watch for and and seek help with. And I imagine there are significant complications associated with meningitis. Yeah, about uh, about one in ten people who survive menin about one in ten people, pardon me, who get meningitis will die from it, meningitis B, um, and about a third of people will go on to develop complications. So, because it's a, a an inflammation of the brain and spinal cord, some of those complications relate to things like hearing loss, vision loss, cognitive or mental status changes. Um, those would be things that could happen, and then. Because meningitis B also involves the bloodstream, it can sometimes cause uh, unusual characteristics in the blood that cause clotting, and we and some people may even require amputation of limbs, typically arms or legs. Um, oh so my. yeah, very serious, very serious disease when it happens. And I imagine you need treatment uh, fairly quickly. Let me ask you a question: Why are the kids heading back to campuses in, at particular risk of meningitis B? Yeah, so meningitis B, as I mentioned, is a bacteria, and it it can live in the nose and throat. Um, and sometimes it can live in the nose and throat without any symptoms. So we call that colonization. And people sort of come across this organism and get colonized in the nose and throat. And then it's spread by droplets, which we've all heard lots about because of COVID, but basically close personal contact. So kissing, sharing cigarettes, sharing drinks, sharing eating utensils, sexual intercourse, those sorts of things when you're in very, very close contact um, is how the organism moves between people and can cause infections when it gets transmitted. And of course, when you're in university, you're in, especially if you're living in a dormitory, you're in a very closed environment, lots of people with a lot of close contact. Uh, that's sort of an environment that almost any infection can spread more readily, but certainly men B spreads more readily. So we know that um, young people who are living in a dorm or a congregate living setting like that are about three times higher, have about three times higher risk of catching men B than people the same age who are not living in that environment. Uh, and again, it's just really related to lifestyle of living close in close contact with others uh, a lot of the time. Wow. It's just amazing. I have to say I cringe whenever I see a young person sharing a drink uh, with another person in the name of besties or... <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you know. me too. I'm an infectious disease doctor, so oh. nobody shares drinks in my house. <laughs> <laughs> no one dare in mine either. Um, yeah. With a, a little OCD, you know. Um, yeah. Speaking speaking of prevention, and that's one way uh, to prevent educating the kids. I would be, I would imagine, would be extremely helpful as well. Uh, that meningitis is a real risk. We don't want to, you know, it's been tough for them with the pandemic. Uh, many of them. We did not go to school. They did online learning. Now they're heading back, maybe for the first time, heading back to campus. Um, 
And so I imagine that's important, but what else is important in terms of prevention of meningitis B? Yeah, the most important thing people can do to protect themselves is to get vaccinated against meningitis B. We have two vaccines available in Canada now that prevent meningitis B. Um, And those would be the best way to protect yourself because, of course, you can't change the fact that you're in a close in close quarters and in in regular contact with people where you could, you know, be exposed to the organism. That's probably unrealistic. But the the vaccines are very effective in preventing MENV. So um, depending on where you are, you, there may be some coverage for MENV vaccines. Certainly, Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island now are are covering the vaccine, the cost of the vaccine for um, students going back to university. Most other provinces don't, but people's parents or their own health plans may cover. So important to talk to a doctor or a pharmacist about or a nurse about sort of how you could access the vaccine, but you can purchase it as well, like other vaccines that are not funded. And it's really important that people know about the vaccine because many of us think that if we did all that we were supposed to do with our kids, we got all their baby vaccines, we got all their vaccines in school, we signed all the consent forms, we never declined anything. We think that our kids are up to date and they've had all the vaccines they should have. But MEN-B vaccine isn't part of any school-based program in the country. So it's not given as part of the, you know, grade seven or eight or whatever year your kids got vaccinated in, in school. It's not part of that series. Um, it's a bit new, although not, not really new, but hasn't been part of any publicly funded school-based program. So one of the challenges we have is this, is this belief that if you did everything you were supposed to do and got all your vaccines, you're, you've had this vaccine. And it's important for people to know that they have not had meningitis B vaccine unless they specifically went and sought it out. You know, some of right. us in Nova Scotia, for example, I have a 20, she just turned 23 yesterday, actually, I have a 23-year-old daughter. And when she was in um, early high school, there was a case of meningitis in Nova Scotia that caused a lot of, you know, uh, media attention, of course. And at that time, a lot of the people in her age cohort, we went out and found the vaccine and people got the vaccine for their kids. So, but you would remember that if you had specifically sought out this vaccine. So if you didn't ever specifically seek out meningitis B vaccine, it's important to know you haven't had it. And as I say, you can talk to any, um, any healthcare provider can tell you how to get it. If it's not funded, paid for by your health plan or your parents' health plan, uh, you can just get a prescription for it and get it at a pharmacy and pay for it. In Nova Scotia, it's about $150 per dose. It's a two-dose vaccine. Um, and, you know, I know school is sort of imminently starting, so people won't be able to get the both doses before they go back to school, but they could certainly get the first dose, and then the second dose can be booked a month later. You could either arrange to get it wherever you're going off to university or college, or the next big opportunity, as I recall from Emma's life, is, is Thanksgiving. You know, maybe book the dose uh, when you come back home for Thanksgiving to visit. But make sure people, people need to know it's important to make sure they get that second dose because uh, you won't have great protection from the vaccine unless you've had both doses. Right, right. And don't get too close to the other kids until Thanksgiving. Anyway, <laughs> great information, Dr. McNeil. I really appreciate it. Is there anywhere where people can get more information about the vaccine? I mean, certainly uh, the the um, B for Chi uh, Foundation, which is a foundation set up um, following the, un- the very sad death of a student here in Nova Scotia. Uh, it's the letter B 
uh, F-O-R for CAI, K-A-I. They have a website. I believe they have good information. Um, and then uh, there's a group called Can Immunize, uh, C-A-N-I-M-M-U-N-I-Z-E. They also have a good website where you can type in Mendy. So there are some good websites out there. And certainly any family physician or pharmacist should also be able to provide good advice on Mendy um, vaccines. On Tuesday, Ontario announced that the province will ban the use of athletes in advertising for online gambling, while also strengthening the standards to re- restrict the use of celebrities who the government says might appeal to minors. Now, I myself feel that this isn't going to change a thing. Just much like smoking advertisement in years past, they're just going to find different strategies to um, inundate people with the advertising to get people uh, doing sports betting because there are lots and lots of people who excessively bet on sports. It's um, a lot of people do it for enjoyment and they are the healthy gamblers. They do it for the excitement, the camaraderie. They might do it here and there. Um, And, you know, they might be strategic and, you know, be good at math or analytics, that kind of thing. And um, they're able to curb this so that it doesn't become a problem. But problem gamblers and pathological gamblers have very different motivations. When they enter that casino, um, they may want to escape the stressors of life. And we certainly have lots of stressors these days in life, but is this one way? And yes, this is one way for people to numb their pain, if you will, or um, find some pleasure in their life. Um, Excessive and out of control gambling can lead to big losses and that can lead that pathological gambler to chase these losses. And so if they fail in this pursuit, um, this might lead to a downward spiral for, spiral for sure. And of course, we know that sports gambling is addictive and it, it stimulates the brain's reward system in the same way that alcohol or drugs or shopping or, or chocolate or any other thing that we can become sex, any other thing we can become addicted to. Um, but you know what I found was interesting um, that age is a factor when I looked into this particular subject. Age is a factor among uh, problem gamblers. Studies have shown that gamblers over the age of 65 generally do not develop into problem gamblers. Interesting. Is that because the brain calms down? I mean, oftentimes they say men calm as they age, not to be sexist here. I think everybody calms as they age. They've gone through a lot of life stressors and managed to, um, you know, accomplish a, a fair bit or deal with issues. Um, so they typically don't uh, develop into problem gamblers. On the other hand, a study of gamblers ages 18 to 29 demonstrated that this age group has the highest risk of developing problem gambling or pathological gambling habits. So do you think that Ontario's new legislation is going to change anything that now that they're not letting the Wayne Gretzky's of the world uh, participate or be somebody to draw young people in um, to gambling? What are your thoughts? 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Do you think there's, do you have a better idea? Do you have something uh, better to show that um, could help to fix this problem. How gambling works is that it stimulates the brain's reward system 
much like drugs or alcohol, and then it can lead to addiction. And, you know, as we see with young people, you know, if this starts at a young age, it's, it's very difficult, especially if they're secretive about something like this, it's very difficult to overcome this. And, you know, if somebody has a, a problem or an issue with compulsive gambling, you may continually chase bets and end up losing. A lot of people or some people, I should say, those who become addicted, you know, they can't stop with the win. They, um, they think they've won, they get excited. They want to go for more, go for more. They often, you, you hear that from people and even people who are doing it for excitement and just for fun and for camaraderie, they just think, well, I've won. I might as well keep going. I'm going to win more. This is so much fun. This is so exciting, but it, it really takes a strong individual to say, I've won 300. I'm going to bed, see you later, and to walk away from it because, you know, we all can get caught up in the moment, if you will. Um, you know, some people who are problem gamblers, they may hide the behavior, as I mentioned. They can, um, they they may need a way to support this particular habit and or this addiction. And so they may turn to theft or fraud to support the addiction. Um, but excessively betting on sports is a compulsive pattern of behavior. It can lead to mental health issues, financial issues, social issues, and certainly other problems as well. And so, you know, you, you hear of people who have, you know, lost their houses, uh, lost their relationships, um, because it is, you know, it becomes out of control. It's excessive. It, it, they cannot pay their bills. They are living in secret. They are living with shame. And it is such a big issue for people. I mean, I think this is a very small pebble in a giant pond of addiction that we're, we're now saying uh, we can't use sports athletes or social media influencers or anybody that would draw young people in. Well, they're just with technology, with AI, with all sorts of other options. I think they're just going to alter their advertising and marketing strategies. And, and I, I don't see uh, myself, and this may be part of a bigger plan. Um, I don't know. There may be um, other steps that they're going to take to actually help to prevent problem gamblers. Um, but oftentimes too, people, if it's not just you know, it's not, not just sports betting, it's, um, you know, other addictions as well. And so some people are hardwired that way, um, and have an addictive brain. You've certainly heard about that and that, that definitely is true as well. And so, I mean, I think we have a long way to go in this country because, um, addiction and mental health issues are highly problematic. And, you know, there's, there's so much around self-esteem and self-confidence and, and mental health and good parenting. You know, as I say, you know, parenting is only hard for the good parents, but it's so important to be a good parent all along. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.